This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE Intellinews. Subscribe at bne.eu. Hello and welcome to Window on the East with me, Ben Aris, the editor of BNE Intellinews. This week I've been at the EBRD annual general meeting. There I met with Andre Kusvek, who's the director of local currency and capital market development for the EBRD region. So I'm here with uh, Andre from the EBRD, um, who's just held a session this morning on capital markets and uh, currency in the whole of the emerging European space. And I just wanted to talk to you about that. I mean, you're saying it's, it's an important part of the development of these countries to have functioning capital markets. And last month I was in Ukraine talking to investors in the agricultural sector, and they were saying we need two things to really develop this sector. One is a good landlord to give Mm -hmm. you ownership of land, and the other is a functioning capital market so that we can raise money Mm -hmm. and and build a business with access to capital. I mean, what's your view? I mean, what stage are we at? It's, It's... been 10 years? Well, it depends country by country, obviously, and there are some, there are some countries in the EBRD region which, you know, were the early starters, uh, Poland, for instance, which was the very first one to start building uh, uh, a second pillar pension system, uh, effectively, which then generates long-term savings in local currency, which, uh, you know, are largely being invested into the local economy. Mm-hmm. You know, for the same reason uh, that we have been promoting, you know, doing local currency financing, if the pension funds, funds were to invest abroad, they would take the foreign currency exchange rate risk. So, I think what we try to promote uh, as EBRD, um, basically within the framework of the local currency and capital market strategic initiative, is exactly to to develop the supply side and the demand side, i.e., you know, the issuers uh, in the securities market or the borrowers in the financial market, and then investors slash or lenders on the other side. And it would take what I would call a a, a pyramid, where basically you would have to have the correct, uh, you know, laws and regulations uh, in place and then build on that the various different uh, products and services. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, when we started off uh, back in 2010, uh, we were just three years into the financial crisis. We had understood, like everybody else, that look, lending everybody dollars and euros is a really bad idea, Mm. because if the local currencies devalue, then they could be three to four years into servicing their debt, and suddenly in local currency terms, they still owe you more than they did in the beginning. Yeah after the devaluation. And then we figured out uh, when we started the initiative, we've initially focused on the currency side, and then we figured out within the next two years that in fact to have sustainable local currency financing you would need to develop capital markets. So in a way we see at the moment you need to develop local capital markets with the capital market infrastructure being the exchanges, clearing and settlement centers, depositories and so on. Uh, all the way through products and investor base and, and so on. So it's an integrated package because you can't do any one of these things. Uh, you, you have to do them all at once if you're going to make a material difference to the development of the country. Correct. But what you could do, and that's what we do through the diagnostics in every country before we start kind of engaging, is that we take a capital market diagnostics, we figure out that they might have certain things in place mm-hmm. and then they may, may be lacking some other things. And we kind of help them to... Uh, to develop those bits that are missing because mm. you can have a, a perfect laws if there is no money 
if there is no, you know, it takes, as I always say, it takes two to tango, but it also takes two to trade. Right. And in a way, trading is more complicated because to, to do tango, both need to want to do tango. To trade, one needs to sell, the other one needs to buy. Yeah. So in a sense, to create a market and to create liquidity, you need different types of investors. Domestic, local, institutional, retail, long-term, short-term, buy and hold, speculators, they are all good. Yes. Lying behind it, I'm looking around the region, um, one of the biggest problems all of these markets face is the fact that there are pretty much no domestic institutional investors. So you take a market like, like Russia or even more so Ukraine at the moment, everybody is desperate not just to borrow, but they need long-term financing. And if you don't have a developed pension system, then you don't have these institutional investors, which then means all your projects have to be short-term mm -hmm. to earn return in order to pay off the debt. But again, you're looking around the system. I was, you mean, you're, you're Estonian. I was in the Baltics in the 90s, and they all put up these three-pillar systems. And interestingly, they, they all did it slightly differently. And Kazakhstan, too, was actually remarkable in so much as the stock market was ignored because of the ownership issues in so much as it was owned by mm -hmm. oligarchs, and so mm -hmm. no one wanted to share the ownership. But the, the, the bond market and the pension system were relatively sophisticated. Last time I looked at it, they accumulated so much money they didn't know what to invest into. Yeah, yeah. Even, when, even before the financial crisis, they had actually accumulated about $25 billion worth of pension money. Mm. That's very significant, right? But no stock market, so where do you invest it? You know, and, and as you say, you can send it overseas, but you don't want to do that. You want to invest into domestic products. So isn't this one of those, those situations where the reforms in pensions across the regions are extremely varied and moreover you've got some surprises maybe like Kazakhstan which is actually pretty sophisticated in terms of pension funds although they're less sophisticated in capital markets mm -hmm. or you've got Estonia which is the other problem which is like sophisticated but their capital market is just too small for to, to, to absorb all the money that's being generated. Yeah, but that's exactly my point that you would need to develop both the demand and supply side. And when we look at Kazakhstan, you know, the pension funds were very happy to invest, number one, in government securities, and number two, which I think is highly regrettable, you know, in often the money flew into uh, related party mm. projects, right? That's, that triggered the problem in Kazakhstan to a large extent. Yet you have then Estonia at the other end, where you have uh, the pension money accumulated, but it is largely, in fact, the last time I checked a few months ago, you know, 92% of it is invested abroad, largely into, you know, Western funds, index funds or otherwise, and then very little is invested in the country. So you would need to also create the supply side of securities that then the pension funds can invest in. Mm -hmm. And in Estonia, for instance, the government has not issued a single bond, mm -hmm. which is a bit of a deficit because it will be the natural investment for the uh, in, uh, pension funds. And then secondly, you know, you would need a little bit of momentum also in the equity market, you know, to bring a few maybe state-owned enterprises into an IPO. And if the momentum starts, uh, investors start paying interest, both domestic and foreign investors, then that gives an opportunity also to the privately owned companies, even the medium-sized companies, to potentially go and list. Mm -hmm. Because if you, if you look around, I mean, the, the, the problem that the world's financial market have is largely that it is over-indebted. I mean, there is just too much debt, uh, everybody is leveraged, and there is not enough equity. So if you look at the 
European EU capital market union, then also the, you know, much of the focus is how do we generate equity? Because if they have equity, then obviously banks can lend them. At the moment, it is maybe the lending issue is less of a problem because of very low interest rates in the main markets, which gives companies unusually high debt service capacity, because if you only need to pay you know, 2%, 3%, you can live with it. If the interest rates were to go up and it's now 6%, 7% that you need to pay, then suddenly you have a debt service problem. Mm. And you need to beef up on the equity side. And, that's, and the, you know, what, as I said, what we try to develop on the complex spectrum of the capital market is all the way from the monetary policy, i.e. the central banks to flex their currency rates and focus more on the inflation targeting, which will then over time reduce the interest rate differential between local currency versus foreign currency. From there to money markets, repo markets, uh, to equity markets, capital market infrastructure and exchanges and so on. The bond markets, government bonds, uh, corporate bonds, all the way to derivatives, which give an opportunity to hedge some of the risks because again you know foreign investors might be willing to come in take the credit risk but they might not be willing to take the fx risk yeah. and if there is no derivatives market then it doesn't really work you know isn't it still very fragmented and does, wouldn't it make sense to to build a integrated market and there's been bits of that i mean the baltic three baltic states the equity markets were bought by omx uh, omx nasdaq yeah. yeah nasdaq from from the out of out of the scandinavia and have united them and actually merged them so it becomes a sort of specialist investment on the Scandinavian stock, mm -hmm. stock market. And then NASDAQ also bought in, was it Serbia or Armenia? Armenia. Armenia. Well, the story actually is that OMX bought it because they, OMX was largely a system developer, so they wanted to you know, sell their system. Mm. And then they ended up owning Armenian exchange and then NASDAQ took over OMX and Right, we just had it, so to say, without. So there's uh, been a few steps, and um, the Russian one is interesting in so much as they're signed up now to Clearstream, uh, Euroclear, mm -hmm. and actually that's had a massive impact on the Russian banking sector in so much as all the local investment banks have died, because their business has just disappeared off to London. You can trade from London as easily as you could do, so there's no need for a local partner. Mm -hmm. But again, uh, that's part of global integration in so much as the Russian bonds have done very well out of that because London traders can buy these high-yielding FOZs, which they're very confident mm. won't default on, and that's given the Russian government. This year they're going for, what is it, 1.2 trillion bonds issue, which is doubled last year to finance the deficit. So they're, they're doing what the Americans are doing in so much as American T-bills are used to uh, fund the deficit in America, but the largest part of the investors now are foreigners, and Russia now is playing the same game. And I think it's clever, in a way, because uh, you know, integrated markets always make more sense. Because you need to have a critical mass of, again, I come back to the same supply and mm -hmm. demand. You need to have a critical mass of securities that are attractive, and you need to have a critical mass and number of investors on the other side, right? And, you know, Russia in itself is a relatively large market. But even there, you know, what we saw that the capital market development really took off once, number one, the two main stock exchanges merged. Mm -hmm. And they basically built uh, Yeah, that was in 2012, wasn't it? Um, RTS yeah. and OSX. Correct, yes. And, and they built a central depository. And they built an integrated central depository. 
they effectively then traded uh, you know, different products all on the same platform, including the foreign exchange, mm. which is not exactly the case in the Western exchanges. But I think in Russia it was very useful because for foreign investors it again was a one-stop, one-shop window that you basically, you know, you buy your rubles there and then you buy your security and if you need to sell, you sell your security and then you buy your dollars again or mm. wherever currency you come from. And I think it was fantastic. It was also it was also complemented by the fact that they actually put together you know, good governance at the exchange itself and then they imposed much better corporate governance rules on the listed companies. Mm. So I Would think you say that Russian corporate governance now then is, is uh, at what standard? I mean, international it is, standard? It is a very good standard. It is a, you know, a decent international standard, that's what I would say. And to what extent would you say that the Russian market is the exception or the dominant force because the market cap of all of the exchanges in the region, Russia is half, if not more, by itself. So if you're investing into emerging Europe, you know, you're kind of forced to do business in Russia in so much as just the ticket sizes, daily turnover in the billions, where Ukraine daily turnover on the UX exchange is like you know, a handful of millions, if yeah. that. But uh, like, I think you're right, again, because size matters. Uh, uh, with size, you get you know, more interested investors. With size, you get greater liquidity. Liquidity itself cr- generates more liquidity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, Ukraine did fall out of love by, you know, many investors for macroeconomic issues, you know, political, uh, geopolitical issues, etc. But it also, I mean, domestically, uh, I was there just a month ago, and, and basically, you know, in, in, in the past, five years ago, you know, there was still a $20 million turnover daily, mm. right? Mm. And now we are talking a fraction of it. Mm. So it does come a little bit into, you need a little bit of a, a momentum, and then suddenly things start to happen. So, and building that is complicated, and it's particularly complicated in the, in the even smaller markets. And you mentioned, you know, the integrated three Baltic markets, which have done everything correctly, that, you know, a uh, broker sees on one screen three markets and, you know, all the mm-hmm. prices, etc. But there is still relatively little activity because there is no new stuff coming to be listed. Mm-hmm. It is always the new exciting things, you know, maybe either privatization of a state enterprise or even listing of a, of a significant mi- minority stake of a state enterprise. Estonia, for instance, wants to now you know, uh, put the port of Tallinn right. uh, uh, on, the, on Nasdaq Stock Exchange. And I think it's a great idea. But again, markets are fragmented. And if you look at the EBRD universe of 36 countries, you know, Russia is big, Egypt is big, Poland is big. Then you need to take a breath because then there is a bit of a gap. Mm. Then you can talk about markets that have a potential like Ukraine or Morocco, Romania, but they are already quite a bit smaller. Let me ask you a different, you you mentioned the markets we're most interested in, and Poland stands out in so much as a well-developed, vibrant local economy, but people like the Ukrainian issuers now are going to Poland. And these other alternatives of going to Frankfurt uh, or London on the AIM, the alternative investments market, and I know companies that have delisted from AIM, which was the classic 90s, like I want to do an IPO, I've got relatively low levels of corporate governance and I'm relatively small, but I, I'm good enough to list on AIM so I can IPO there. But the problem they found was that they were sort of medium-sized fish in an extremely big pool and they weren't getting the turnover and then you suffer from this attrition, you know, this trade attrition. You're not getting the trade, so the traders are cutting your price just to get some turnover. And so they left and went to Poland, uh, 
where there were a much bigger fish in a much smaller pool, and moreover, the investors on that exchange were interested in the region in the first place. You know, so a Ukrainian company listed in Warsaw would get a lot more action. And that turned out. So you've got this sort of regionalization play mm -hmm. going mm -hmm. on here rather than an integrated play. But is, is that a good thing? I mean, do you. Uh, I think there are numerous aspects here. The first one is we have to live with the fact that the smaller companies are always less liquid. And I would say that for the smaller companies, you know, the primary market liquidity or the ability to actually go list and raise funding is, is the more important part. Mm. And then the secondary market liquidity, i.e. the markets then trading and pricing correctly the risk or the development of the company is, is never going to be the same as it is for the big ones. Mm. You know, because on the big ones, they're always the index funds, which is now a massively growing area, and the ETFs, they always go and buy. And if you're small, you know, you don't just fit into, into, the, into the portfolio. Um, on the other hand, I think what is important is that there will always be what I call home bias, i.e. investors that actually know their companies, you know, brand recognition, but also, you know, following whatever media for company news, you know, changes in the management, new markets, uh, even, you know, reporting financials, etc. It is always easier to do it, you know, within a kind of a home domestic universe. Um, the Ukrainian companies you mentioned, I think they, they significantly benefited from the fact that, you know, the Polish pension system was well developed. There was money constantly kind of accumulated on the pension accounts that had to be invested and part of it went to the, you know, Polish, uh, uh, Polish uh, uh, sovereign bonds, but part of it went to equities and the Ukrainian companies did benefit. And there were, you know, I think at least six companies that were actually listed uh, and, and had a, had a you know, relatively decent uh, turnover. So in my mind, the best solution would be, look, you do have local markets, but then you have integration with your neighboring markets. And this is something that we have helped to build as EBRD in, in, the, in the Balkans, for instance. We have uh, helped to finance and create something that is called SEE Link, mm -hmm. or the Southeast European Link, which initially we got uh, Croatia, Bulgaria and Macedonia, and we helped them to set up um, a new company that basically bought an IT system and you know, had consultants uh, largely paid by the EBRD to, to set up a trade uh, uh, order routing system mm. so that you know, the Macedonian broker can actually buy Croatian stock. And now Serbia and Slovenia have joined with that same platform, so we now have currently five countries that are being covered mm. and there are more countries in the region potentially joining you know some of them have already openly expressed interest Romania for instance Bosnia mm. uh, Montenegro potentially even Greece mm. and that would be great now we need to think okay look trade is easy but what is the expensive bit is the post trade mm. i.e. you know it's easy to place an order buy a stock but now I need to settle mm. and that's number one cross-border payment expensive <laughs> number two uh, currency uh, conversion often again expensive so we need to come up with a almost a kind of a you know regional custodian mm. that will manage that and we, are, and we are trying to help that and then what you would have is that you have these otherwise fragmented smaller markets you know linked even though they will still always have their own depository and they will have their own stock exchange everybody gets their independence uh, but they can trade regionally. What, what about, just to play devil's advocate, 
it's settling all of this stuff in bitcoins or something similar, a virtual currency. The, the Russians have actually just changed their mind on this one entirely. They were like mm-hmm. banning it, and now they're embracing it. And I think the reason is is the fact that the, the, the blockchains allow you to identify who did what at what time. And so they're, they're seeing it as an anti-corruption thing, you know, being able to actually... I think it's fantastic. Hello? But that would also be the, 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 trouble, uh, the solution to your, your cross-border problem, wouldn't it? If everybody trade in some you know, cryptocurrency and then at the end you could change it back into whatever it was, Lari or Drachma yeah, yeah. or whatever, um, when you wanted to. I think it is quite uh, possible that you know, that's exactly what the future brings because eventually technology is going to win. You know? Whatever is faster, cheaper and equally safe or safer, and you know the blockchain gives you that technology, it's going to prevail. Mm. And there is no question about it. And, and that is independently of the fact what the politicians want to do, what the regulators want to check, uh, etc. You know, eventually the markets will move there and everybody will need to adopt. Uh, Surely it's going to happen first in Eastern Europe, simply because of the fact that you know, the you know, Czech Republic or Hungary is like 10 million people. They're so small. Yeah. They have to do this regional trade if they want to get the volumes up to the size where an international trader would come in simply because the ticket sizes are too small. You know, no one's going to invest $5 million in, in, in you know, Romanian stocks. They want to invest like $50, $100, $200 million. I can again bring you an Estonian example, being a bit of a pioneer in this. There is a, a startup exchange called Fundabeam. So if you go to fundabeam.com, you will find out basically what it does. It is based on the blockchain technology. Mm-hmm. And it is doing two things. It's doing the, the kind of the usual, like the crowdfunding platforms where you can raise money, but it also gives you the added option you can actually trade units. And, and uh, as EBRD, we have invested into Fundabeam for a small stake through one of our venture funds, mm-hmm. 3TS. And we have now helped Fundabeam to, uh, to make contact with the Zagreb Stock Exchange, where we are directly shareholders as EBRD. And between Zagreb Stock Exchange and Fundabeam, they have created the joint venture. And they have already started to implement it. They already raised funding for the first project in Croatia, which is a, a, a company producing solar benches. So effectively, it's a, it's a bench which you know, generates electricity. Mm. Uh, and you know, they raised uh, successfully for that. And, and, and again, you know, the technology takes over. And Fundabeam as, as such, you know, I think they have now effectively brought to the market uh, startup enterprises from various different countries and they have engaged investors from more than I believe 60 countries in fact and it's kind of cross-border and everybody and they basically what they do they 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 don't trade the shares as such but they trade the units Mm. of kind of every every investment is an SPV and then they trade these units and you can sell and, and buy from each other. Very exciting. Andrew, I'd like to thank you very much for taking the time to talk. Fascinating. Very good talking to you, Ben. Thank you.